Well, today I'm going to, I got a lot of ground to cover. I am going to probably fire hose you a little bit. Um, So please take good notes. Please go back to the podcast because I definitely want to try to get this all in today. Um, But today's message, the title of my message today is a question. It's a question I I think we've probably all asked ourselves. Uh, It's a question we've probably wondered about, you know, concerning others in our lives that maybe have backslidden, uh, fallen away from the faith. Um, The question I'm posing today in the title of my message is, Can I Lose My Salvation? I think it's an important topic to hit. I think we can read the Bible and know what it says about this topic. And I think we can come away feeling very encouraged. Um, We're going to talk about some things that don't seem very encouraging, but I promise you um, we're going to get there. So, and, And whether you've asked this question directly or indirectly, through other questions, you know, like, um, have I sinned too much for God to forgive me? You know, what happens if I sin, and I know it's a sin, and I still do it? Is there a sin that God can't or won't forgive? And so I think many of us Um, probably have someone, maybe even a loved one, who has walked away from the church or biblical living, and we've wondered if they're ever going to make it into heaven. And so I want to look at this question, and I want to look at what the Bible says concerning this question, concerning our salvation. Amen? Is this going to help anybody today? Okay, so you got to you got to get your hearts engaged, your mind engaged, and let's really dig in on this. So if you've spent any serious time, uh, you know, studying your Bible, we've all probably, you've, you've probably come across some very difficult passages uh, that make you wonder. I mean, we've come across some passages that give us great confidence and a lot of security. However, when we read the Bible, um, there is sometimes a filter that we read it through, or maybe a set of lenses, you know, your rose-colored glasses or your, you know, other colored glasses that you look through the world, and so sometimes when we read the Bible, we're looking at it through a filter, we're looking at it through a, a set of lenses, and it affects the meaning of the Bible. For instance, Matthew eighteen twenty is a scripture. We love to quote, it says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, this is a very popular one, right? Well, here's the thing. A lot of times we love to pull this out of its context. And whenever, you know, we, and, and the way we do that is, is so, when, you know, we put on an event or, you know, very few people show up to church, uh, you know, on a Sunday morning. And, and so we're ready to quote this scripture, you know, to encourage each other. You know, we say when two or three are gathered in God's name, he's here with us. You know, we're small in number and mighty in spirit, right? We say those things, it's, and it's good. There's nothing wrong with wanting to encourage ourselves, nothing at all. But that's not what this verse is about. And, and, and we even have some people who really uh, want to abuse this verse and they may use it as a justification for skipping church to worship 
at home with my family while the football game's going on in the background. <laughs> you know, just saying. So the context of this passage actually has to do with church discipline and dealing with wayward believers. It's actually meant to be an encouragement to church leaders during tough times of loving confrontation. That's the context of this passage. So what this verse is saying, it's trying to encourage leaders and saying, listen, don't you worry, God is with you and the two or three witnesses as you intentionally bring correction and restore this brother or sister in Christ. Didn't know that, did you? That's the real meaning of that passage. But depending on our filter, we can get sideways with it. Here's another one. Matthew 7, verse 1. This is one we love to quote when the pressure's on. Judge not that you be not judged. Right? We love quoting this one. Most of the time, um, you know, we hear this verse quoted by someone who is either having their sinful behavior or questionable lifestyle choices, um, you know, confronted. Uh, the world, this is one the world knows very well. They've actually got this one memorized. <laughs> you Christians aren't supposed to judge. Doesn't your Bible say not to judge anybody? Oh my, you're quite the theologian now, aren't you? <laughs> well, listen, here's the deal. Again, this verse is out of context. When you read the whole thing, this verse is not a warning against speaking out against certain actions or behaviors. That's not what it's about. In fact, 1 Corinthians 2.15 says this. It says the spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. Then we've got Matthew 7, 18. It says, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So the Bible teaches that we can actually know what kind of tree you are by your fruit. And so the context of Matthew 7 is a warning this is what it's about. It is a warning against self-righteousness and hypocrisy. And many, which means if you're going to correct someone, then we have to be expecting to be corrected. If we judge someone with aggression, then we can expect to be judged with aggression. And even, even when Jesus himself tells us and he says, hey, remove the plank out of your eye before you remove the speck, he still wants us to remove the speck. It's not a, oh, I'll leave you alone if you leave me alone. That's not the verse. That's not what we're talking about. So to look at some of these passages that we're going to look at, about whether we can lose our salvation, we have to first understand maybe that we have a filter that we're reading them through. And in the great big of Christianity, there are two really major filters 
that most everyone reads their Bible through. And these two major belief systems systems are this, Calvinism and Arminianism. I encourage you to write these things down. Calvinism and Arminianism. Calvinism is a theological system that began with John Calvin. He was a French theologian. And Calvinism is a theological system that adheres to a very high view of Scripture, and it seeks to develop its theological interpretations based solely on the Bible, solely on God's Word. And so it focuses on things like sovereignty, meaning uh, you know, that God is able and willing by virtue of his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence to do whatever he desires with his creation. That's a heavy tenet of Calvinism. God is sovereign. He does whatever he wants with who he wants. And it also maintains that within the Bible, there are these major teachings. Number one, that God, by his sovereign grace, predestines people into salvation that Jesus died only for those who were predestined and that God regenerates the individual to where he is then able to and wants to choose God and that it is impossible for those who are redeemed to lose their salvation so from Calvinism is where we get these major Ideas or thoughts that you've all probably heard. Once saved, always saved. Predestination. Those are the two big buzzwords for Calvinism. Now, that's not all Calvinism talks about, but those are the two that we all go, huh? Now, the other filter is a filter that's called Armenianism. And it's named after Jacobus. Arminius, and he lived the same time around John Calvin, and, but he was a Dutch theologian, and under that theological concept, um, it developed that God predestined people, but not in an absolute sense. Rather, God actually looked into the future to see who would pick him, and then he chose them. Jesus died for all people's sins who have ever lived and ever will live, not just the Christians. Calvinism says that Jesus he only died for those who were saved. And so under, under Arminianism, each person is the one who decides if he wants to be saved or not. And finally, it is possible in Arminian theology to lose your salvation. And so the big buzzword that we always have with Arminianism is free will. Everybody say free will. We love that American word, free will. That is the big, big word that comes with Arminianism. So we can, as a believer, you can have either one of these or both of these theological belief systems informing us on how we understand the Bible. And so I just, I just want to bring these out because it's going to affect how we interpret these verses that we're going to look at today.
whether we can lose our salvation or not. So let's dig in. Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6, starting in verse 4. This is one of the big scriptures that cause a lot of duress. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, again, this is a very popular passage that a lot of us, a lot of Christians, use in defense of someone losing their salvation. And so, because in this passage, we've got this person who seems to be described as a fully participating uh, in all of the benefits of, the genuine, of a genuine Christian life, right? They've been enlightened, they have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the goodness of the word of God and, and the powers of the age to come. So from the Armenian point of view, this person was completely saved. They were born again. And because of this language in verse 6 of fallen away, it seems really clear that this was a Christian who has lost their salvation. Now, there's another verse I want to look at to help back this verse up. And it's in Hebrews 10. Starting in verse 26. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Everybody go, ooh. That's a heavy one. So again, this is another popular verse used to be a baseball bat to help bring conviction to people's lives who are wayward. We've, we, we use this in hopes that, you know, we might use this to persuade someone away from their sin and to come back into the fold. So, from an Arminian perspective, we've got these two very solid verses that state a Christian can lose their salvation. Now, there's some other verses that come along, too, that can really point in this direction. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. And I encourage you to write these, these scriptures down, 18 through 20. 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I am have handed over to saying that they may learn not to blaspheme. So we've got this holding on. If they hold on, and some have shipwrecked their faith language. Colossians chapter 1 and 21 through 23. 
And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So again, we've got this language that, well, things will go well if you continue. Let's look at Hebrews 3, verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm until the end. Again, If we hold on, there's that if. If we hold on to our original confidence. And then Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So, this one doesn't say it specifically, but the implication is that if he, your name can be blotted out, if I won't blot it out, it can be blotted out. So, in these passages, we've got some real strong arguments for a person losing their salvation. So, if the case is yes, you can. You can lose your salvation. How? we lose our salvation well Hebrews 6 again it uses this language of falling away and then in Hebrews 10 it says that if we continue deliberately sinning there is no sacrifice for sins so what do these two passages what are they talking about this falling away this deliberately sinning mean Well, to understand that, we've got to look at the full context of Hebrews chapter 10. When you read Hebrews chapter 10, the writer begins by talking about the law. And he talks about the law and how it was a shadow of good things to come. And then the writer goes on and they talk about that sacrifices were never enough to save or perfect anyone. All of the temple sacrifices, the, the, the blood, you know, the bulls and the goats, all that. And if it was good enough, otherwise it would have been one and done. So the Hebrew writer's saying, you know, it's not enough because if it was enough, we'd have killed the first bull and we'd all be okay. That's not what he, that's, it wasn't that way. And instead, he goes on and he talks about every year how the high priest has to offer sacrifices as well as daily offerings. Like they got to keep giving it. They got to keep going. They got to keep going up and offering these, these sacrifices. But then the writer says that Jesus comes and Jesus was the great and final high priest. The very last, the final, because, and he offered his blood once and for all, for the total and complete forgiveness of sins. 
So that's what we're talking about. This Jesus came as the high priest, offered his blood, and it is finished. It's done. It is complete. All sin that you have, it's forgiven. Never, and, and then the Hebrew writer goes on and he says, never, ever again, there will never be another high priest because there will never be another sacrifice. It never is going to happen. Jesus owns that spot permanently now. Jesus, Jesus is one sacrifice. It was enough for all of time. And now the Hebrew writer, he talks about it and he says that now he sits at the right hand of the Father waiting for this whole thing to get wrapped up. And then the writer of Hebrew talks about the full assurance of faith and that we, that we have in Jesus and, and that now we can enter in boldly. Everyone say boldly. boldly. That we can enter in now boldly into the holy place and go before God with all confidence because of the blood of Jesus. And then the writer says that we have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus and our hearts and our consciences are clean. And then we come to verse 23. I'm going to read this. Hebrews 10, 23. It says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And now we're back to verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So what is the knowledge of truth? What is he talking about? Well, it's everything the book of Hebrews has been talking about. It's everything that chapter 10 has been talking about. The knowledge of truth is that Jesus is the only and final sacrifice for sin. That's the knowledge of truth we're talking about. And so, the sinning that the writer is writing about is this. Write this down. It is unbelief. It is unbelief. The writer is warning that if we continue sinning deliberately, meaning that we have had the gospel, you have had the gospel clearly explained to you, and you still refuse to believe, then there is no other sacrifice for sin. Only a fearful expectation of judgment and fire. Does that make you want to take a big breath and go, Because some of us have been beating each other and ourselves up for years. Well, I just keep sinning that same way. I guess I'm deliberately doing it. I've lost it. This sinning that he's talking about is one sin. 
It is the sin that says, I don't believe Jesus paid it all. And I still want to do the, bull, the bulls and the goats thing. I still want to go offer up the sacrifices. See, the Jews, they were hearing this gospel of Jesus, but they were refusing to believe that he was the final thing. They didn't want to believe that the blood of bulls and goats doesn't cover you anymore. Only Jesus can save you. And if you deliberately continue to sin in unbelief, there's no more sacrifice. None of this is going to work for you. You can kill all the animals you want. There's, it doesn't work anymore. There's no sacrifice left for you if you deliberately, because you've heard the gospel, you know the truth. It's Jesus only. And you keep going back to the temple and you keep sinning, there's no salvation for you. Am I making this very clear? That is the sin we're talking about in Hebrews chapter 10. This is not talking about the guy who keeps falling into porn even though he hates it and he wants to be free. It's not talking about the homosexual who wants to be free but still struggles with same-sex attraction. It's not talking about the man or woman who occasionally still abuses drugs or alcohol but even though they hate it and they want to be free... Now, again, notice I said they want to be free. I want to be free from this. I want to forsake it. I hate this. I hate this thing that's in my life. I want it out. But I fell into it again. I did it again. And I hate it. The blood still covers those people. But if we live a lifestyle of sin and we have no repentance or desire to be free, then I would have to say you're probably not saved at all. But when it comes to this deliberate sinning in Hebrews chapter 10, we are talking about the sin of unbelief. So my big point to make is this. There is only one sin that can cause us to lose our salvation. It is the sin of unbelief. So again, remember all those scriptures we just quoted that the Arminians used to justify this losing of salvation. If you go back through and you look at them, they all speak of continuing in faith. Continue believing. Continue in your faith. Hold on to your faith, your confidence in Jesus as the only sacrifice. Hold on to that. Don't walk away from it. Don't forsake it. The only way we can lose our salvation is by no longer believing that Jesus is the only and final sacrifice for sin. Now let's tie that to Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4 where we have this Christian guy or girl and they've fallen away. 
So in the context, again, of the book of Hebrews, there were Jews who were coming to faith in Jesus. They were coming to faith in Jesus, but after a while, they were being persuaded. They were deciding that they wanted to go back to the law, back to the old sacrificial system. Well, this Jesus guy is cool, but man, Moses, Moses, I can't live with myself not going up and offering sacrifices every day. Moses, I can't break this 400-year culture. Can't do it. I got to go back. I've got to go back. And so basically, they were saying that Christ was not enough. And these people were falling away from faith. And so under this, the, the Arminian position, a Christian who deliberately walks away and denounces their faith in Jesus is one who has truly lost their salvation. And there's a couple of people I can think of right now who've done that. You know, honestly, there's really only one and truly only one sin that will send anyone to an eternity of torment. It's the sin of unbelief. Yeah, that person may also have a long list of other sins tagging along. But the only sin that sends someone to hell is that they don't believe in Jesus. They don't accept Jesus as the one and only and final payment for our sins. I mean, think about how we get salvation. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what is salvation? It's a gift. Everyone say gift. Yeah. Everyone say it louder. Yeah. Salvation is a gift. It's nothing I can do to earn it. I can't work for it. The only, the only way to receive salvation is through believing in the finished work of Christ. That's it. Salvation is it, not, you know, salvation, faith in Jesus plus my good works. It's not, you know, Jesus plus my sinless living. We cannot and will not and should not add anything to the finished work of Jesus. We cannot earn grace. We cannot earn forgiveness. So if we cannot earn salvation by our good deeds, then we cannot lose salvation by our misdeeds. Are you listening to me? That's the gospel. That's the gospel. My good deeds didn't earn it, so my bad deeds can't lose it. I cannot earn the gift of salvation, then therefore I cannot send it away. Proverbs 24, 16. For the righteous falls seven times and rises again. But the wicked stumble in times of calamity. 
I cannot lose my salvation just by not performing well. I have to get into unbelief. I have to say Jesus isn't it. I don't believe in anymore. I reject it. It's a myth. It's, it's silliness. People have made it up. There's a hundred stories about messiahs in every culture. It's all fake. I don't want it. That's how you lose salvation. You deliberately sin and say, I don't believe. Now, this is a very broad and oversimplified explanation of Armenian theology of eternal security. And there is so much more to be said. And there are volumes and volumes of books written about this topic. But listen, go back to that, that list of scriptures and, and, and see how faith and believing and confidence are what's really being talked about when it comes to losing salvation. Now, the Calvin camp. In the Calvinistic camp of theology, things are different. And so under the teachings of Calvin, which is also called Reformed theology, we have the major doctrines of predestination and the perseverance of the saints, also known as once saved, always saved. And before you turn up your nose at those buzzwords, I think it's important to look at these topics so that we can understand why our Calvin brothers and sisters believe what they believe. In fact, you might be sitting next to one right now. You might be. And I want you to know, Calvins are not preaching another gospel. Okay? Everybody listening? Calvins are not preaching another gospel. They believe, just like Armenians, that Jesus is the only and final way to obtain salvation. Calvins are born again. They just differ with the Armenians on the process of salvation and whether you can lose it or not. And there's all kinds of other areas, to, but today we're just talking about losing salvation, okay? Again, volumes and volumes of books are written on these theological precepts. So, Calvin theology teaches that the only people who get saved are the people who God predestined or elected for salvation. It teaches that some people are destined for salvation and some people are destined for destruction based on God's sovereign choice. And because God, by His mighty power and sovereign grace, has chosen a person for salvation, that person can never lose their salvation. It, the mighty and awesome power of God to save a person is the same mighty and awesome power that keeps a person saved. So let's look at some of those scriptures that build a very strong case for this position. Romans 8, starting in verse 29. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is it God who justifies? Who is it to condemn? Jesus Christ, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I know you're all, you're all in conflict because these are favorite scriptures. But you don't like that it's pointing at this thing over here. It's okay. Romans chapter 9. We're not going to read it. Write it down. Romans chapter 9. John 6.35 Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never, never cast out. John 6, 44, no one, everyone say no one. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. John 10, 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. 2 Timothy 1.12 I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard till that day what has been entrusted to me. And when you think about the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, right? When we get saved, we become what? A new creation. Old is gone, the new has come. Under Calvin theology... We can't reverse that. We can't reverse the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. What God has made new, it can't be unmade. Titus 3 verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing, the regeneration and renewal 
of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ, Jesus Christ, our Savior. 1 Peter 1.23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. 2 Peter 1.4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. The divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And then 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So, in Calvin theology, those whom God calls he predestines, he elects, those who he has chosen can be saved. And once we are saved, nothing and no one can take us away. And in Calvin theology, the, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is impossible to reverse. Because it's divine, it's indestructible, and it's imperishable in nature. Now, you and I, we may not be Calvinists, but I certainly enjoy having those thoughts. Amen? God has chosen me. Nothing can take me away from his love. And what I have because of the Holy Spirit in me is irreversible and indestructible. That makes me happy. <laughs> that puts worship in my heart. Now, how do Calvinists, Calvinists interpret Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10? So, concerning Hebrews 10.26, where again talks about this deliberately sinning, the Calvinists would point us back to 1 John 3.9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So with this scripture, under Calvin theology, it's evident that the Hebrews 26 verse is talking about someone who was never saved. They never have ever experienced a true saving moment. They haven't fallen away. They were never saved in the first place. So how do we reflect that back to Hebrews 6, 4? Again, for it's impossible in the case of those who have been once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and of the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, because since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So, under Calvin theology, it would say that this person has, who has experienced all these things was also never saved. And the way that to justify that statement is that this person in Hebrews 6 is a person who was probably raised in church. But never made a personal commitment to Jesus. 
Or this person thinks they're saved because they go to church, they take communion, they pay their tithe, you know, they've received prayer uh, from, you know, they felt the power of God touch them. They've seen the word of God work, you know, because the word works, saved or not. It's true, right? Bible works. So they've seen the word of God work. They've seen the power of God on display. But if you were to look at their life, you would see no fruit. No evidence of Jesus being their Lord. They live life on their terms. They don't bother about conforming their life to the Lordship of Christ or His Word. And so the Hebrew writer, according to Calvin theology, is describing someone who thinks they're saved, but they're not. They mentally assent to the, yeah, Jesus is Lord, He's the Son of God. But their lifestyle never lies. And so the Hebrew writer, according to Calvin theology, is making this argument that it's impossible for this person to come to repentance because they don't think they need to repent. It's the question of how do you get a Christian saved? How do you tell someone who thinks they're in, they're not? And they need to get saved. I think a lot of churches have these people in it. You know, they show up a couple of times a month to ease their conscience, but they really have not much of a relationship with Jesus. And so a Calvinist, they're going to point to things like Matthew 7, verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So, in Calvin theology, Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 are describing someone who was never saved in the first place. These people are not losing their salvation because no one, according to Calvin theology, can lose their salvation. These people were never saved in the first place. So, whether we lean towards Arminian theology or Calvin theology, the outcome of the interpretation of these passages is the same. No salvation. You've either lost it under Arminian theology or you never had it in the first place under Calvin. If you're leaning in the Arminian way, You've lost it because you no longer believe in the atonement of Jesus. If you're leaning towards Calvin, you weren't saved in the first place. So, here is the comfort I want to leave us with. It is very, very difficult, if not impossible, depending on which way you're leaning to lose your salvation. 
You hear what I'm saying? It's very difficult, but not impossible, to lose your salvation. You have to make a choice to walk away from Jesus. You cannot send your salvation away. You cannot fail it away. If you believe with all of your heart, Jesus is my Lord, and I want to be free, and I want to be out of it. I hate this. I want to be out. And so the comfort I want us to have is that we cannot use these passages to beat ourselves up, to not beat others up, and to fearing that we can sin away our salvation. God saved us, and as long as we keep believing, as long as we keep our faith, our salvation is secure. It is not Jesus plus all my good works. It's not Jesus plus my sinless lifestyle that keeps me saved. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. So yes, I believe someone can lose their salvation. But it takes a thought out, willing effort to walk away from believing in Jesus to lose it. That's the gospel of grace. I didn't earn it, and I cannot turn a gift into wages for something that I worked for. See, I worked for wages, and the Bible says that it was death. That's what I was earning. That was what I was putting in my bank account before Jesus. Jesus is a gift that I only have to believe in and receive. Can someone say amen? amen? All right, close your eyes. Altar team, prophetic team, come down to the front at this time, please. Again, I painted so very broadly this picture. There are books and books and books written about these things. I encourage you, if you're still confused, to study and show yourself approved. But today, I want to say this right now. Just everyone quiet. Please stop moving around the room. If you're here today, and you've never asked Jesus into your heart, you have never said yes to His saving gift, today is your day to make all things right. Today is the day to say, I believe Jesus paid for all of my sins. I believe He is the Son of God. I believe that He can save me. I believe. I'm going to pray here in a moment, and after I get done praying, if that is you, and you are ready to say yes to the saving power of Jesus, and to be secure that your eternity is in eternal life, 
not eternal damnation, then when I get done praying, just get out of your seat, come down and see one of these prayer people. So, Father, I just say thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for the the work of Jesus Christ. I thank you for his salvation. I thank you it's a gift that I can't earn and I can't send it away. I thank you, God, that we can be secure in knowing that my salvation is held by you, God. And so I pray for everyone in here, God, who needs to say yes to Jesus, that, God, you would open their heart and draw them to the Son right now, God. Draw them in. Draw them into a saving moment with you today, God. I pray right now, Father, that you would release the spirit of adoption. That people here would say, Abba, God, be my daddy. Be my daddy, God. So I pray right now, God, to release the spirit of adoption. That the blood of Jesus would come and erase every failure, every sin, every mistake, God. It would come and erase, and the cross would come and deal death to the old man. So that a new creation could come forth. So today, God, I ask you right now to call them forth. And Lord, if there are any here today that need prayer, God, I ask that you would, Father, as they would come forward to and receive prayer, if they need healing, God, if they need a heavenly perspective, God, just meet them today. Father, I just ask that you would just use this word today to spur our hearts to go after this deeper. To know that we know that we know. So God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your presence and for your power. God, I just bless everyone in this room today to go in confidence that no one would leave here today not confident that they have security in knowing they'll spend an eternity with Christ. So I bless us today, God, and I release us in the name of Jesus to be, to be light and to be salt in the world, to share the good news of the gospel with the whole world, Father. We thank you and we give you praise. In Jesus' name. And everybody says, Amen. Amen.